restarted both of them. We're going to start. Um, it's good to see you all again. Um, I want to take care of a couple of business matters. I always feel a little bit scattered going into this because it's these things are getting more and more overwhelming to me. My my mind doesn't hold on to them all. A couple of business matters. Let's see if I can get this straight. Um, I went online and um, took some of the outlines that I've sent you guys and cleaned them up a little bit. So you might want to return and um, and get what's on the line now and replace it if you're if you're using any of that stuff or taking it seriously. Um, I, did you all get my two emails? The the uh, I sent an email on the mean couple of days ago and then I sent an email today with the outline. Did you guys get both? Okay, good, good. I'm always so unsure when, you know, I send off stuff in this, but anyway, good. Here's a suggestion. Um, here's a suggestion. Hold on just a second. Tina, or sorry, Tess, yeah. can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can. Oh, good, good. Um, I can hear your voice, so I know your audio is good. I, um, you may want to remain discreet, but but there's a apparently a video button that people, or a, sorry, a visual button that people can press to make their images present. So I, I don't know how familiar you are with this stuff. I'm not at all, but I, I would love to see an image of you um, and Tina as well, because I I'm not sure that I would recognize either one of you, and I'm genuinely sorry about that but anyway um, we haven't seen Mary in a couple of weeks and we haven't seen Connie I hope things are okay if anybody if any of you see either of them please say from me that we have missed them and I hope we see them again um, um, that's that's the first thing the second thing is this you all know that next week we're starting Virgil it's it's gonna be it, I mean, I think those of you who have stayed with us, I hope you feel that you're fortunate in some way to go back to recover our beginnings because we don't know our beginnings. When we get to Boethius, it's the work that we will read after Virgil, before Dante, Lady Philosophy, it's a woman, is going to say to Boethius, who's waiting his execution, the problem with you is that you, you've lost a sense of your beginnings and ends your beginnings and ends. And until you get a grasp of those, you won't know who you are. Um, so um, we're going back to beginnings. I mean, we've done the, we're going to finish the Homeric world tonight, hopefully, and start Virgil next week. Um, and um, when we're done, and we start the Christian world, I think you'll see things about our Christian faith that I don't think you would have known without it. And I'm saying that not only because you probably don't know Virgil, because, but because I believe in America, we live in a largely Protestant world, and I think the Catholic world by and large has taken on a Protestant character, that, that we just are not aware of it. And going back to some of these early works, I hope we'll recover something of our faith. That's one of my great hopes. So, 
we'll start Virgil next week. Um, so, and remember to get the uh, uh, the Robert Fitzgerald copy. That's the one we use the edition. The second thing to let you know before we start is in the St. Francis group, we're going to start doing Hemingway's The Old Man of the Sea. And the only reason I'm mentioning this to you guys is because we're not confined by time and space anymore with this cyber stuff. Um, we used to be confined. I mean, I had to do Monday at Francis, Tuesday at you know Seton, and because we were bound by time and space. I am not at ease with this mode that we're in right now at all. I wish we were physically present to each other, but we can't be. But because we are, there's no reason um, not to join in in each other's classes. So if any of you wants to join in on the Hemingway um, Old Man on the Sea, it's a very, very short work. It's a very short work. It's the work that gave him the Pulitzer Prize, and the year following that, that um, prize, he was awarded the Nobel Prize. Um, Hemingway and Faulkner were the two greatest novel, American novels of the 20th century, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Both of them dealt with the modern world and its darkness, its bleakness. Um, Faulkner, to me, was in so many ways greater than Hemingway. But Hemingway established himself because he did with writing what no other American writer did. He wrote in a very simple, straightforward style. He called, he called, he had done, he described his style as something like seven-eighths of the iceberg are buried, that he only shows the tip of the iceberg. So his, his stories typically just give us a bare sketch of something, but when we read it, we become aware that there's far more going on than we know. And um, it, he, and it was an extraordinary writer. I think his short stories, by far, are the best stuff that he ever did. For Whom the Bell Tolls, um, I can't remember the other one, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and um, Farewell to Arms. Those are his great um, novels. I think his short stories are among the best things he wrote until he did Old Man of the Sea. And when he did Old Man of the Sea, he did something special. Faulkner's comment on Hemingway when Old Man of the Sea came out was that Hemingway finally, finally, I don't know what this is. Hemingway finally discovered God. So one of the questions I'm asking in the St. Francis group, God doesn't appear in the work. It's this old man, Santiago, a very old man going out to sea, Spanish, He's a fisherman. He goes out and catches this marlin. It's all about this catch. I'm not going to tell you what happens because I don't like spoiling stories, but it's very short. And I can't tell you what happens. Um, he survives and comes back. Um, but, but Faulkner's response was, Hemingway finally discovered God. Now, that's a pressing, pressing question for me because Hemingway's dealing... Hemingway converted to Catholicism, by the way. I don't know if any of you knew that. Um, but he also took his own life at the end of his life. Um, he was a man who was on the edge of despair constantly. Um, he did extraordinary things in his writing. He's given us some of the most beautiful renderings of the bleakness of the modern world. Um, it's, it's not bizarre. It's not insane. It's not openly violent. It's subtle. Um, but 
It's a very honest rendering of the modern world as most of us know it. So, if any of you is interested in joining, don't hesitate. I mean, there's no reason for you not to join that Francis group because we're not bound by time and space anymore if you want to do Old Man of the Sea. Um, wait, somebody just came in. Chris. Chris. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you Boy, hear me? I, I, I'm sorry I can't see your face, but I'm glad to see your name there. Um, yeah. i just letting everybody know that um, at St. Francis, we're starting Old Man of the Sea, Hemingway's Old Man of the Sea. And if anybody wants to join, I mean, we're, we're going to do Virgil's Aeneid. We're going to start the Aeneid next week. So we're, we're one step away. We've been one step away from Christianity. This is going to tighten that step because Virgil is taking us to Rome and some extraordinary mystery. So it's so important for our faith. Anyway, we're, we're doing that, but I'm just letting everybody know here that at St. Francis, we're starting Old Man of the Sea, Hemingway's, and we're, we're back in the modern world. And I just wanted to let people know and invite them. So if any of you, if any of you would like to do that, it's not going to excuse you. I'm giving you all a quiz on, on Virgil's of the Aeneid next week. Um, but if you'd like to do that, do. If you do, give this some serious thought, okay? As you know, I'm posting text online. So if you go to the Literature's Prophecy site, on that content page, if you go to the very bottom, there are two options, St. Francis and Seton. And in both of those options, there are hard files, word files. So you can go in and copy them. And in the Francis um, folder um, option, I've included three of Hemingway's short stories. They're extraordinary. Hills Like White Elephants, um, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place, and um, The Short, Happy Life of Francis McComber, which I think are his greatest short stories. So if you're inclined, if you want to do some reading, if you want to step into the modern world, go online. Um, I'm going to take those copies off shortly because I'm nervous about copyright. I, I'm not sure that they should be there, so I'm only going to leave them on for a short time and then I'm going to delete them. So if you think you're interested, copy them. You know, they're on a hard file. Um, you can copy it and then print them off. I've also included in both um, um, options, Francis and Seton, um, a poetry packet. And it, it contains a lot of the poems we've already done. It contains some poems that you guys haven't read. But I, I know from some of the things that you guys have said that you're enjoying the poetry. So um, if you if some nights you just want to med I've included some psalms, you know, Old Testament psalms. If some night you want to just enjoy a poem, click on. You can copy it, take it to bed with you, read it. Here's what I would ask. <laughs> you know how serious I am about this stuff. If you do get those poems and you read them, I would ask that you read them aloud because you should hear them. You're not angels, however much you want to pretend you are. None of you is. You're not angels. We're corporeal creatures. We have bodies. They were meant to be heard. The music of them was meant to be heard. So if, if any of you wants to pick up any of those poems, you can go through them. It's a, it's a good collection. You know, it's not a lot, but it's some. Okay? Um, so that's all business stuff. Anybody... Anybody have any questions or?
um, trying to get everybody oriented about what we're doing, where we're going. Um, I'm going to mute you all in just a second because I've been told, I don't know this, but I've been told that if I mute you all, the quality of sound improves. But I want to do that with this clear understanding because this is very important to me. If any of you at any time gets confused or has a question, please unmute yourself and ask it. Interrupt. And genuinely, I just, I, I wish there were more time for discussion. Um, there isn't. Um, but I miss hearing from you guys deeply. I'm saying that sincerely. When you have, I don't think there's such a thing as stupid questions. That makes me angry when people say that. We shouldn't be embarrassed about questions. Too much pride. You have a question, ask. Um, please. Um, the greatest learning in my life has taken place from students who have asked questions because, and very often they think they're stupid, they're not. But somebody's question forces me to think about something from a from a stance that I don't have. And having to answer it very often clarifies and very often deepens my own sense of things. So I'm always grateful for the questions you guys have. Okay? So if you if you have something, unmute your button, jump in, and I'll take the questions. Or any comments that you have, okay? So I'm gonna unmute everybody, but but please take seriously what I just said, okay? Okay, let's start. I lost my wife. Doc! Wait, can you come, can you come say hello to everybody? This stuff drives me nuts. This... You were doing business, so I... I know, just... This, um... Here, say hello to this... Can you come in here and say hello? God. Good evening, everyone. Everybody's muted. <laughs> Glad to see you all. I so miss being physically present to each other. Uh, just more than I can tell you. God, I'm not Gnostic. Um, we, human beings, we are bodily creatures for sure. Okay, um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, The Star, Starlight Night. It's not an easy poem to understand, so let me just make this brief observation and then we're going to jump into Homer. In the starlight night, Hopkins is look, looking at the stars in the heaven, knowing that there's a creator. And when he looks up at the constellation or the stars, he sees all these constellations, like, um, what does he call them? Um, like burrows, you know, communities in the sky, these constellations. He's aware that there's a creator and that there's an order and beauty to things. So when he looks at stars, he doesn't look at them the way scientists do. Because if you know, you, you, if you know your sciences, you know the tendency of the scientist is to look at things in terms of mathematical abstractions. So they don't see things physically or in terms of analogies. They see things in terms of mathematic empirical properties. So they'll look at a star to see um, um, how much it's burning out, you know, how old it is, I mean, what, whatever physical, prop empirical properties they can learn about it. And, they'll, and they will present it generally in mathematical terms, terms that are observable. A poet will look at that and he will see it in terms of a larger vision. Um, 
And I think you'll bring something of a love for that thing, not as an abstraction, not as an idea. Hopkins looks up at these stars and he sees those stars. And from that perspective, he looks down at the earth and what he sees when he's looking down on it is something like a mirror reflection of the stars. It's like you're looking at a lake. So when he looks down, he sees all these bright things, um, these trees with the winds pushing through the trees, turning the leaves up. So they're turning their underside up and it's like doves or lights coming from the earth. Um, if you've ever read you know, Faulkner, you, you know that very often Faulkner will describe the earth as emitting a light, as if a, a light emanates from the earth, that the earth is giving off a light. Because, remember, we're a star. No. We're so, we're so, we're among the planets. We're so grounded, so materially oriented, that we lose a sense of where we are in a solar system. But in a solar system, we're a, a star, a planet among millions. So often in Faulkner's works, we'll get these descriptions of something rising up out of the earth. So when Hopkins looks down, he looks down on this farmyard with the winds blowing and the trees lifting and the leaves upturning. It's like they're releasing doves. Um, and then to the center of this farmyard bar, or scene is a barn. And inside is a harvest. So the harvest has been done, the harvesting has been done, the, um, the meal is being offered. So in some ways it's an analogy of the Eucharist. And you know that, um, I mean there's lots of analogies in the Bible that come to mind. One of them you might remember is the, um, the, the virgins with the lamps. You know that some of them had their oil so they were ready for the master when he returned. Some of them left. So they weren't there. So when we look at this farmyard scene, and he describes the, um, the barn, just hold on to those analogies, whichever come to mind, because I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's far more that I'm just mentioning right now or suggesting. Okay, so once again, it's, it's Hopkins looking at an order in nature, a beauty in the heavens, the beauty reflected on earth, and at the center of this is um, a barn. Remember, Christ was born in a manger. It's humble and but there is a meal being offered with the, um, the mother of the child and Christ. Okay, so the starlight night. Look at the stars. Sorry, just, uh, sorry. Look at the stars. Look, look up at the skies. Well, look at all the fire folks sitting in the air. The bright burrows. It's like these little communities up there. The bright bureaus, the circle citadels there. Down in dim woods, the diamond dells. You know that underneath the earth are coal that can be transformed to diamonds. So underneath this, earth, or this surface looking down is all this richness, potential light, like coal being turned into diamonds. Down in dim woods, the diamond delves, the elves' eyes. The gray lawns cold where gold, where quick gold lies. Wind beat, white beam, airy abilies set on a flare. Flake doves sent floating forth at a farmyard scare. Ah well, it is all a purchase, all is a prize. 
it can all be purchased, all of this. Remember, farms are often thought of in terms of economy, right? The farmer plants his seeds, he harvests them, and he sends them to market, and he makes money, right? It's an economical enterprise. Except here he says, ah, well, it is all a purchase, all is a prize. Buy them, bid them, what? Prayer, patience, alms, vows. Those are the things by which we purchase this world. Is, that following? is everybody following that? Can't buy it with money. This is not a part of an economic trade. Um, this is a form of communion with God. All a prize, all a purchase. Buy them, bid them, bid them. What? Prayer, patience, alms, vows. Look, look, a May mess like on an orchard boughs. Look, March bloom, like on mealed with yellow sallows. These are indeed the barn, within doors house the shocks. This peat bright, this peace bright paling, shuts the spouse, Christ home, Christ and his mother, and all his hallows. So, it's a wonderful rendering of a farmyard scene. And Chris! <laughs> Your image just popped up. Okay, um, so let's start the Odyssey. Let's start. Um, just to try to help, if you all got that outline, you know that um, that um, what I want to do is is go over a, um, a number of things that we've covered over the course of our time in the Odyssey. The idea of justice. Odysseus is a man of many ways, the homecoming, marriage, regimes, many of the cities he saw. What Odysseus learns about women, to me this is so crucial. I've said this before that the Iliad is one of the great critiques of the male ego, the way in which men in their pride are willing to go to battle and kill each other to recover their honor. That's what the Iliad is about. And you know that that all comes to a halt. It, it's transformed. When Achilles says, such honor is a thing I need not, and after Patroclus dies, you know that he admits his fault, something none of the other men do. Um, they stay in their pride, killing each other. He accepts his fault, admits it, re-enters the war knowing that he's going to die, so he accepts his death, and once he does, nobody can stop him. So it's amazing rendering. It's, a, um, it's like an unmasking of the male ego, and the tendency to um, his tendency to use his power as a man to um, kill others, even to use women. You remember they're the highest form of booty. The Odyssey, I think, is one of the um, strongest critiques of women. Um, and I, it, in my own mind, it's a necessary thing today because feminism is, I think, has so misled lots of people today. Remember that after the fall, men and women both fell. It wasn't just male. It wasn't dead white males. It wasn't just the men. Adam and Eve fell at both. So it wasn't all men's fault. It wasn't all women's fault. Men and women share a fault, disorders. When we turned away from God, we turned our love towards ourselves. So there's a tendency in men to be selfish, to use women. There's a tendency in women to be selfish, um, to use men. 
Kay. And I think Homer is, um, what he does in the Odyssey to me is a remarkable job of opening up the, the female psyche. So, so we have to look at that. What does he learn about women on his sea voyages? The sea itself. And um, I've said again and again that I think the Odyssey is the first great anti-romantic book in the West. That he, he over romanticizes nothing, nothing, nothing. Odysseus is unique as a hero. He's called long-suffering Odysseus. There's, there's no choice. The modern American is romantic in this sense. We think when we face our choices, if I'll do this, I'll escape suffering. So we avoid it. What Homer's making clear is that almost all of our choices consist of the lesser of two evils. That we're always going to suffer. Long-suffering Odysseus. The question is, are we prudent enough to choose um, the lesser f option, you know, where the, the suffering is least? That is, that is, are we honest enough to allow that whatever choice we make is going to entail some suffering? We can't escape it. Now, line that up with Christ and the cross. And we'll be everybody's going there, yeah? Because Christ makes it, Christ is long-suffering Christ. He was in exile. He left his home. He wasn't at home. This, he says, the, man, the son of man has no place to lay his head. This was not his home. He was in exile. His whole time here was an estrangement. He left his father to help us. Um, and then finally went to a cross. And he asks every one of us to pick up our crosses and follow him. Which means, accept a cross, enter it in love, go with him. So in amazing ways, the Iliad and the Odyssey are already foreshadowing Christ. And I think that's particularly true of um, Odysseus and what we've been watching. So those are some of the topics. And then what I want to do is close out the uh, end tonight, focus on the end. But I just wanted uh, to take a minute with each of those eight um, topics um, as our review. The first one, we've talked about... Um, the importance of justice in the ancient world. Okay, the, the, the greatest ideal of the ancient world was not love. If it was, it was erotic love, not caritas, not Christ love. The great ideal of the ancient world was justice. If you're going to church at all on the weekdays, or, or even during the week, you know, when we have the two readings, the, the theme that's repeated endlessly in the first reading is God's justice the just man, the just order, the just community. The great call of the Old Testament is justice. That's from the Father. He gave us the Ten Commandments to follow the law. So the great, the great call of the Old Testament is justice. Plato's great appeal in the Republic was justice, that none of us can bring justice to another person without learning to order our own souls. I'm going to come back to this in, um, in the Odyssey. So the highest virtue for the ancient world was justice. We can't bring justice to the world without being one with God. There is this order to the universe. The whole struggle for each one of us is to bring our souls into accord with, to conform to that, to be one with God's ways. That was called justice, okay? And then to bring it to other people. Now that means when somebody's, let's say we happen on a street corner and somebody's beating up you know, a young man is beating up a 80-year-old woman. We can't stand by and watch it happen. We have to 
step in at risk of our lives to help achieve a justice in that moment. Um, so justice isn't an abstraction. It often puts us at risk in our marriages, with our children, in our communities. You, you cannot watch what's going on in the news today and not raise questions about how do people understand justice? What are they doing with it? Um, so what we saw in the Iliad was what, I, what I'm calling the logos at work, this or what the Greeks call a logos, at work putting a curb on male power. That's at the heart of the Iliad. It's critiquing that male tendency um, to give in to the male ego and use power at the expense of other persons, killing other persons, in fact, in order to in order to recover your own honor. Okay. That the Odyssey is concerned about justice, but it's um, it's the what I'm calling it, the perfection of the soul in the line of justice dealing with the family. So Odysseus is not concerned so much for his own honor the way Achilles was. He wants to get home. When Calypso invited him to stay for eight years and give him immortality. It would have been against his nature. He's a, he's a human. He's mortal. To choose immortality f for her would be to go against his very nature. It, he's a man. He's human. He wants to be home with his wife. So the whole action of the Odyssey has to do with a man returning home to, and to bring justice. But we know from the sea adventures that he can't do that until he learns all of these things about reality. He won't be able to be the husband that he could be if he doesn't learn to deal with these things. And most of you know, deal with feminine archetypes. So Odysseus is a new kind of man, a man of many ways. Um, remember, I, he, he exemplifies the four natural virtues. Temperance, fortitude, prudence, and justice. Okay, temperance, fortitude, prudence, justice. Is everybody clear on that? We could, I don't want to take the time now, but you could go through all of the episodes and you can find Odysseus tried on all these. That, for example, so just when he was coming, off, coming home and offshore, the men opened the bag. He was asleep. Um, when the men ate the cattle, he didn't eat the cattle. There are times when he's temperate. Um, it's impossible to look at what he does without seeing how important endurance with him. I mean, he, he endures. He endures a year with Circe. Endures a year, eight years with Circe. He's at sea, constantly fighting the elements. Um, so we're watching a man struggling um, to hold on to who he is. Now, I made the argument. I don't think it's obvious, but it's there. That. What Odysseus brings to every one of his thanks, Doc. What Odysseus brings to every one of his adventures is an effort to realize the mean. You all got my letter on that, right? I hope you did. The mean is different from for different people, but the mean is the the realization of a human perfection in us. Now remember, because the modern world, not the Protestant world, has lost it. The modern scientific world has no clue about it. In the natural world up until the modern world, this was true of Catholicism all the way up until the 16th, 17th century. We are capable of a perfection in the natural order. 
just the way a rose is, or, or an orchid, or a, or a grape harvest, right? Those things are not depraved. Flowers are not ruined. The Protestant mind that things are depraved absolutely makes no sense. Everything in nature is capable of a, of a perfection in the natural order. The Greeks called that a telos, an end, that there's a purpose, an end. So what we're watching in, a, in Odysseus is a man struggling to attain that end. That end is a homecoming, reunion with his wife and son. But to, but to be what he can be means facing all of those difficulties and overcoming them. So he has to learn to be temperate, he has to learn to be prudent, he has to learn to be, to endure, and he has, more important than all of them, he has to learn to be just. The most important quality, virtue, of the four natural virtues is justice. Because it's justice that relates us to other human beings. We can be temperate by ourselves, we can be prudent by ourselves, we can endure by ourselves, right? But justice means giving another his due. It's the one virtues that relates us to other people. So it's amazing to watch how what Homer's doing lines up with the Old Testament in Yahweh. I've been stressing that for weeks. I hope that's clear. See, I mean, it's so important to see that. The, the biblical and classical worlds come together right now. Is everybody clear on that? I'm talking about the natural order, a natural perfection, not a supernatural perfection. That comes from Christ. Is everybody clear? This is so important because the modern world has lost it. Okay? So marriage, Homer, or Odysseus is attempting to get home to, reco to recover, be reunited with his wife. So we're looking at marriage, what a marriage means, what it will mean to come home. We can't talk about that until we finish the book to, so we can ask the question, what does the marriage mean now, at the end of the book, that it didn't mean 20 years earlier when he left home to go off to war? Is that clear? Is that clear? Because remember, he's 20 years younger. And more importantly, when the Odyssey begins, Telemachus goes and visits two homes, two different marriages, Nestor's and Alalus's. And we saw two extremes of male presence, husbands, Nestor makes no place for his wife. He does nothing but talk. We talked about that, right? And Menelaus, in a sense, almost does nothing but enable. His wife comes down and she's carrying the past and she wants to take drugs. So, so we've got two images of marriage. Ithaca's in confusion. It's in chaos, right? So we have to ask, where, where is Odysseus at the end? Where is Odysseus and Penelope in their marriage? Where do they stand with respect to Nestor and his wife and Menelaus and his? Is that clear? So Homer's, in the Iliad, we're looking at individual excellence. In the Odyssey, we're looking at a marriage and the role of the husband in bringing order to home. What he has to deal with if he's to have any chance of making his home a just home, a good home. Okay. What does he learn at sea? Um, he met all of these regimes. He had to deal with them. We've talked about them. Most of them were, were feminine. I want to I come back to that. Um, let me just quickly rehearse this because I, I want to get past, I want to get to the ending as quickly as I can. Um, 
Lestrigonese Queen, Large as a Mountain. Um, I, th I thought all the things that um, Melody said a couple of weeks were so right on. Um, but we went to other things last week too. Lestrigonese Queen, The Sirens, Skill and Cribdus, um, Circe, Calypso, I'm missing something, Nausicaa, Nausicaa. the Phaeacians. He had to deal with all sorts of, Nausicaa was a beautiful sort, beautiful sort of idealized woman, you know, um, very charming, lovely. Um, what is he learning to deal with with all these women? Remember, one of the things not to forget about the, the um, Phaeacians is the Phaeacians like, are like an, an idealized community. Remember, the two prototypes of the ancient world were the Phaeacians and the, and the Cyclops. The Cyclops were barbaric. The um, the Phaeacians too di idealistic. They didn't know the bow. They knew no wars. They knew no troubles. They lived in an isolated world. So you have to wonder what kind of a wife would Nausicaa be dealing with hardships, because they didn't know suffering. In fact, we talked about the ironies of that because when they took Odysseus home, remember Poseidon dumped a mountain on them. It's a way of showing them their hubris, um, and I'll come back to that in a minute. So he had to learn about all these disorders in women in order to get home. And then he went to the land of the dead, and when he was there and visited all the queens, we learned one thing. Not one of those queens remembered their husbands. Not one. What they remembered were their households. So what we're seeing is if you look at men in the Iliad, they tend to use women as possessions. If you look at women in the Odyssey, they tend to use men as possessions. Men are strong, they can get them to do things, they can gather all these possessions. When they get to the afterlife, they don't remember their husbands, but they remember is all their possessions. These, you know, these estates that they created. So, I'm going to read this now on page 224, just to, to have it behind us, um, so we don't have to come back to it. When, when we get to the second half of the book and, um, and, and Odysseus is coming home, Athena goes to Telemachus in Sparta, remember, to tell him to go home. And she says, she says this to him. He's still at Sparta. He hasn't taken his leave yet. He says, she refers to the suitors and the fact that they're eating up Odysseus' home. It's time for him to get there. So urge Menelaus of the great war cry with all speed to give you conveyance and you'll find your stately mother still there at home since now her father and her brothers are urgent with her to marry Eurymachus. He's outdoing the rest of suitors in gift giving and has been piling up presents to win her. No property must go out of the house unless you consent to it. So the male line is really important for holding on to an order in the world. If there isn't a male there to defend it, what will happen? I mean, Penelope, at some point, Penelope has to make a choice, and she's going to have to make it based on whatever decision she makes, the presence they give her, how, how well they woo her. I mean, she's going to face that later. No property must go out of the house unless you consent to it, for you know the mind is like, you know what the mind is like in the breast of a woman. She wants to build up the household of the man who marries her, and of former children, and of her beloved and wedded husband, she has no remembrance when he's dead. Now, we're only listening to that after the fact, right? But if we were reading well, we would have seen that when we went through the land of the dead. Because when Odysseus talked with all the women there, they, 
what they described were all these possessions. Not one of them remembered her husband. What does that say about women? So in both works, Homer's looking at men and women, and um, in one case, war, men at war struggling to, um, to defend um, themselves in an issue of justice, and women at home trying to hold on to a home with children. And the story opens, remember, at that moment when Telemachus is coming to manhood. It's time for him to step up. He's no longer a kid. And that's where the Odyssey starts. So, um, and remember the sea, the sea I've suggested has, I mean, we can, we can attach to it a number of symbols. Um, some have suggested it's, it's an image of the irrational. Athena is not with Odysseus at sea. Hermes helps him out a couple of times, not Athena. She meets him at Scaria with the Phaeacians, and she meets him again when he's home. But Athena's the goddess of wisdom. Odysseus is having to learn to deal with the irrational, what's under the surface that hasn't become rational. It's like it hasn't been lifted into a rational state. So the sea can be looked at as the irrational. I think there are, um, there's a basis for claiming that it's kind of a grace. It's where a man learns. Remember, the, the sea is not our home. The sea is not our home. Our home is on land. The sea is dangerous. It's constantly shifting. It's constantly shifting shape. The old man of the sea. By the way, Hemingway gets his title from this work. Remember, when Menelaus went to Egypt, he had to, he had to talk with the old man of the sea to find out how to get home. And uh, it was interesting because the image of the old man, was, or the, his daughter said, when you get to the old man of the sea and you want to get an answer, you've got to hold him tight because he's going to terrify you. He's going to, he's going to shift shape. And he does. He turns into a tree, a lion, a bear, and the men can't let go. So one of the truths of the Odyssey is, it's like Peter on the water. When things start getting turbulent, hold on. The sea is an image of something shifting, constantly changing, but there's something there if man will hold on to help get him home, but he has to hold on. It's like an anticipation of Peter. It's a wonderful image. To put it in more positively, Odysseus comes home a changed man. He's not the man he was 20 years earlier. Could he have become the man he becomes at home if he had not undergone gone his experiences at sea. So however threatening and violent, he, all of his companions die. They, they, if they had listened to the god of Helios and not eaten that cat, those cattle, they would have gone home. They, they did not, they would not willingly suffer a hardship and they died. Odysseus was willing to suffer the hardship, to, to starve, to go hungry and he gets home. And we talked about the importance of food, and I suggested there may be links to the Eucharist there, that, that food is the source of life for us, that remember the cattle have no generation, they're not a part of generation, they're eternal. So I, I think that, big, but they're cattle, I mean the men eat them, they're humans. There's an amazing suggestion there, for me at least, as I, I mean it's my thought on it, that it's a foreshadowing of the Eucharist that we can't live without food. There's something immortal in that cattle 
and by eating it, the men are being, the men are being sacrilegious. It's as if they're taking food for granted. When the proper response for us on earth is to give something back, to give something up. Instead of acting as if the world owes us something, the proper response is to give. Something's been given to us. And we have to learn how to acknowledge that by giving things up. And instead of doing that, they, they eat it. And it, it's interesting to me, I, I've said this before, the, the, the loss of their lives turns on eating food. It's such a simple thing. And yet they don't get home because of that action. So, so those are some of the major themes. I want to go to the, the end now and, um, and deal with the homecoming. And I want to try to just summarize what goes on and then ask some of the what to me are some of the more important questions about the book and what homecoming means in the marriage. But let me stop. Any, any questions you guys have about um, all that we've done so far? Amazing work. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. It says unmuting. Okay, I have a question. Um, when Odysseus was going through, I don't remember which one of the, uh, if it was um, one of the trials, and they, they warned him that people, some of his men were going to die. And he, I mean, it almost seemed like he made Cersei, a choice. Cersei said that about, hold on, if I, Cersei said that about skill and Charybdis. Is that what you're thinking about? Yes, exactly. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, well, it almost seemed like he was making the choice to save himself. He knew he was going to have to sacrifice some of his people, and he felt really bad about it, but he did it anyway. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering what that says about him. I mean, that he's willing to sacrifice other people because he wants to get home. Good I mean, is it, yeah. you know, your you know that it's going to happen. I guess he, I guess he didn't realize everybody else was going to die eventually. He just felt like it, he would have to sacrifice some for everyone to be, for almost everyone else to benefit. I I've got a response, but anybody anybody have an answer? It's a it's a good tough, <laughs> just like you. It's a good tough-minded question. I mean, implied in it, sort of, is, is he being selfish? You know, I mean, what do, what do we make of him here? Sir, well, it's interesting, Cersei, and we've talked about this, she's the, well, the, I don't, she's the one who makes, who arouses the animal in men. I mean, she's, she's not as ethereal, you know, as Calypso. She's more earthly. And she's the one who helps him know what he's got to face and guide him. And she gives him counsel here that's true. Think about it. If he, so if he went to the straits with skill on one side and Charybdis on the other, and he didn't know anything about it, he, he could have lost all of his men. You know. But she tells him, don't go that way. Um, wait and go the other way because you'll only, use, you'll only lose six men. So, and so she does help him. But anybody, it's a really good tough-minded question. Anybody have a response to that? Tina, do you have a response? 
Are you there? <laughs> <laughs> Tess, are you there? I want to meet you guys. I, I really want to put together a face with your name. Um, Maria, are you there? Yes. <laughs> I'm glad to hear your voice. Do you have a response um, to uh, Melody's question? What do you think of Odysseus then? Is he being selfish? No, I think he was just being a leader, and so he had to decide for the for the rest of the team and everyone. Yeah. Uh, he had to keep calm, so he couldn't inform them. Yeah. So I think he was just uh, doing like his leadership role. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Those are exactly, exactly, that's scary. Those are exactly my words. Um, you know, when you're, if you're in an army situation, you're going to war. Um, and you know you're going to lose men. Um, and you, the, here, I mean, here's the problem. If you're going, let, I mean, I've been in, you know, I've been in the military. I was in the Marines for a while. I didn't see combat. I was in the reserves. But we know that there are times when men go into a situation where they're going to lose lives. Now, and, and I know, I know this from my life on this earth, that if you have ten men, there are going to be four or five men there that you do not want to lead that platoon because if they do, they're going to lead to disaster. It's just they're, they're going to cause the death of everybody else. So to be a leader takes a lot of courage, it takes a lot of good sense, and not a lot of leaders have those qualities, frankly. So if you put yourself at risk and, and so you, let's say you've got 20 men, let's say you've got 50 men, and you put your life at risk, oh God, thanks, Doc. Um, you put your life at risk and give yourself up whilst, let's say, 12 men survive, there's a serious question whether or not those 12 men will get home because of their leaders. So a leader's in a tough position. I mean, he's got to do something to, when he knows it's going to cost the lives of other people, because if he knows he doesn't, the whole will suffer. So it's a question of part for whole. You know, or, or in, 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 in more practical, for the common good. That sometimes you have to sacrifice lives for the greater good. That's, that's just a... a and, 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 I, and I've used the word anti-romantic that way to describe the Odyssey, because that's the situation in which Homer or Odysseus is in so often. Um, so I don't, see him, I don't see him being selfish. I see him doing what he has to do. Um, you know, you, you can say there's a lot of ego in that, and they may be truth, but if he gave himself up, there's a serious question whether the rest of men would have gotten through anyway. So, okay. um, Marie, I just I thought your answer was it's really funny because it's exactly the, the question for me was leadership and and um, and the difficult role. You know, when I when I think about good war movies like Saving Private Ryan or Platoon um, or We Were I can't We Were Soldiers or whatever. There's lots of um, um, war movies that that deal exactly with these things. I mean, it's almost impossible to watch a war movie and not find a scene like that because that's what's going to happen. Um, 
haven't ranked the white wing in. Any other questions before we go to the end? While we're thinking about all of this, I hope everybody is not losing sight of Christ. That um, Can anybody imagine Christ without... Whatever else, he's the Son of God. He's, he's the second person of the Trinity. He's divine. And he took on our human nature. And in his human nature, he was both God and man. Both. Completely subsumed. One. Can you imagine Christ doing anything and not being temperate? Can you imagine Christ doing anything and not enduring? Can you imagine Christ doing anything and not being prudent? Can you imagine Christ doing anything and not being just? Would he ever disobey his father on a question of justice? Would he ever undermine or go against the justness that his father asked? Did he ever do anything like that? No. In fact, if anything, he came to fulfill justice. Those were his words. I came to fulfill the law, every iota of it. He came to do his father's will to be just or he could not have answered our injustice. That's what he came for. So the principal aim was to answer a crime. We couldn't, to be just. But he brought a transcendent love to that act. And we couldn't. And he asked us to follow him, to open ourselves to that same love in all of our efforts to be just. So in, in amazing ways, it's, it's like everything we're reading is prefiguring Christ. It's pointing us there. Any, any questions before we turn to the end? Anne, did you have something? Can you, can, can you unmute? A, just piggybacking on what was said earlier. I think it's Can important it also down? to note that quick. Odysseus's leadership was not going to end on the sea. He had to go home not only for his own homecoming but to put to order his uh, Ithaca. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. There's a much it's really interesting the the Homer's amazing to me. That he could have done this at all just is amazing to me. You know, it wasn't written down. God, it's an oral. That he could have even remembered that. That for, it's just extraordinary to me. Thanks. Um, there is, even though the 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 whole nature of the action of the Iliad is to see Achilles as as attaining an individual excellence, and that's a I think that's a fairly accurate description of what he does. There's a sense of a we already implied to him. He came back into the war because he felt like he let um, um, Patroclus down. And he came back with a different sense. He even, you know, he, he sends um, Priam off with Hector's body. Identifies with his father. So there's already implied an implied sense of a we. It's not strong, but it's there. And I think it's more present in Odysseus because it, everything that moves him is to get home. I mean, as you just said, Anna, it, it's, um, he, he, he weeps at Eclipse's Island for years. 
he wants to be with his wife and son. It's where he should be. Um, he weeps. So there's this sorrow he, he, he carries that won't be answered until he's home, until he's with his wife and son. Okay, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do this very, very quickly. Um, the last time we saw Odysseus, um, the Phaeacians had put him on a ship with all of their possessions and sent him home. And you know that um, when they give him passage and they return, the Poseidon dumps a mountain on the, on the ship. I loved um, Kay's um, description of what was going on or understanding what was going on. That, that, that Poseidon was punishing them for their hubris. Because remember, they had this... this um, advanced sense of technology that they could create these ships that would go over the sea without fear. It's exactly like computers. Exactly. No oars were needed that the ships followed the thoughts of men. I, it's so ironic. If, if, if you can find a better description than com computers, show, show it to me because I'm not aware of it. To, Homer, there isn't anything about our modern world that Homer, except Christ, and he, he had some sense of him. There's almost nothing he didn't understand. This is 2,500 years ago. They were too proud. And the danger was, if they go across sea without fear, what's the problem? There's a roadrunner dog. Wow. In the Chris's garden. You, it's by the car. Um, to go across the sea without fear is to presume on the gods. To feel like you can master nature. The problem with, and the, think about the modern world and its attempt to master nature. The problem with that is that the gods existed in nature. What you were doing indirectly was saying you could master the gods, that you weren't afraid of anything. So Poseidon dumps this mountain on them, and, and I, I loved Kay's description of it. She said that that mountain was um, God dumping the coronavirus on us. <laughs> that this big, huge mountain had been dumped on America, and I thought, God, what a perfect image because I couldn't agree more. I just think as a people we become so proud, so arrogant, so technologically advanced. We just don't know how arrogant we are. It's really, I, I, I think it's a grace to stay home because we've got to start asking ultimate questions again. Why are we here? What's going on? We have to learn to get along with our wives and, and wives with husbands. <laughs> Work can no longer protect us. <laughs> I mean, all sorts of challenges are, you know, we're facing right now that we haven't. So, Anyway, so Odysseus comes home. The first thing he does is hide his stuff and then t turn to page 204. I've got to go through this quickly because I want to try to get through as much of this as I can. Um, he hides this stuff. Athena comes to him, as she so often does, disguised, and asks him who he is, what he's doing, Page two four two five. Um, bottom of two four. So she spoke resourceful. Odysseus was happy, rejoicing in the land of his fathers when Pallas Athena um, um, told him the truth of it. So he answered, but he did not tell her the truth. But check that word from the outset. Forever using to every advantage the mind that was in him. I heard the name of Ithaca when I was in Wide Crete, 
far away across the sea. Now I myself have come here with these goods that you see, but leaving as much again to my children, I have fled an exile because I killed the sons of Idomeneus, a man swift of foot who in wide Crete surpassed all others for speed. I killed him because he tried to deprive me of my share of plunder. From He goes on like that. He lies down below on 205. The goddess great Athena smiled at him, stroked him. She was proud of him for doing that. He just lied to her. Why? What's going on? Why is it characteristic of him? What's he doing? And why is she proud of him? She's the goddess of wisdom. He was prudent. He he didn't know her, and he could have been killed if he just uh, showed himself his true identity to anywhere, just like that. Good for you, Maria. Yeah. Um, why does he tell her? I mean, Maria, can you pick it up again? Because I, why does he tell her that he was known for being a killer, and very fast of foot, a very fast runner. Why did he put that in? I think it was because she would be intimidated and wouldn't want to steal from him. Yep. So. Yeah. I sometimes imagine somebody, you know, if we were accosted on the street, I mean, I've never faced the situation but it would tear, I don't carry a gun, but sometimes I imagine just sort of tucking my thing in and like I'm talking to a police radio, just to <laughs> put a scare in somebody. I mean, when, when you're, there's that anti-romantic aspect again. That is, one of the things you have to say about this book is Odysseus doesn't romanticize it. Evil exists in the world. Evil exists. He does not romanticize. He takes responsibility always. He's always on guard. He's not innocent. He's trying to protect things. And Athena praises him properly because he's doing what he should. He gets to Eumaeus' house and Eumaeus greets him hospitably. It's, it's a wonderful exchange. Odysseus doesn't reveal himself. And the two exchange stories. And he, Odysseus tells a, a couple of false stories that um, um, he went to a Phoenician... Um, people and they actually took hold of him and tried to sell him and he got away and he tells him that he knew Odysseus um, and knows that he's on the way home and then he also tells the story of an escapade at Troy when he forgot his mantle hoping that he would get a mantle out of um, Eumaeus. Eumaeus treats him kindly I, I think I, there's so much I, one of the things I loved about reading this section again was when you read a section of Homer and you're introduced to a character, you're always taken to somebody else. Everybody has a story. Eumaeus has a story. He talks about somebody else who has a story. It's like meeting a friend on the street that you haven't seen in a while who tells you about things and suddenly your world fills out. I mean, it's just the way things are. But part of the beauty of what's going on here, just keep this in context, um, Ho um, Odysseus does not reveal himself. He's being guarded because he doesn't know. What he does know from Agamemnon is when Agamemnon went home, 
he was treacherously killed. That is, he was too innocent. You don't know what you're facing. And um, there are too many stories of betrayals. Uh, the, the Phoenicians were going to betray him. Everywhere he's gone. And, and you, we know from the wanderings all that he met. So wherever he goes, he's going to meet evil. Everywhere. There's no place in the world in which evil doesn't exist. The question is, what do we do with it? And um, the interesting thing about what Unamias does is, is that it's the opposite of what the Cyclops did. He welcomes him, feeds him, entertains him, he beds him, um, he gives him a blanket and goes outside to take care of his sheep. He, he's doing what, what we haven't seen many people do in the story. He's serving. And he's a, Odysseus is a stranger. And we know the important, the, the reason for the rights of hospitality in the ancient world is because, this is sort of, it looks to Christianity in amazing ways. The reason for those rights of hospitality were that they knew that any stranger who walked into their house could be a god. So think about the risky situation. You could be letting in somebody who could rob you. Um, it could also be a god. So you had to be on guard and um, Umayas shows over and over again um, that he's a faithful servant. He lets Odysseus sleep while he goes out and tends the flock. Um, and um, then we go back to Sparta. It's there that Athena tells um, Telemachus to go home. And we learn, he picks up um, this stranger on page 231. This is so interesting. Um, this stranger comes to him called Theoclymenos on the top of 231. So while he was busy with prayer and sacrifice to Athene, beside the stern of the ship, there came to him an outlander from Argos, where he had killed a man. Now he was a fugitive. He was a prophet, and by blood was of the stock of Melampos. Um, he says on the middle of 232, So I too am out of my country because I've killed a man of my tribe, but he had many brothers and relatives in horse pasturing Argos. So um, it's one of the major cities in Greece. With great power among the Achaeans, avoiding death at the hands of these men in black doom, I am a fugitive since it's my fate to be a wanderer among men. He asks for a conveyance and, a, and Telemachus will, um, will take him with him. I, I'm not sure what to say about this except that he prophesizes that um, Odysseus um, will come home. So, and it turns out to be true. He's a killer. He's a wanderer. He's fleeing from people who want to kill him. One of the things that's most important to remember when you read the Odyssey is we grow, we grow up in our world in a police state. We've got police all around us to take care of business. Even though there are lots of people who want to see police go away. We grew up with police protecting us for one reason. Because we know the danger of trying to take vengeance for somebody who's done a wrong against us. The danger that we can become so involved in what happens, so passionately involved, that we can take vengeance instead of justice. Because they're not the same. Justice means being in accord with something, putting away your, you know, the image of justice as the woman is blind with um, weighing the scales. We have to find out what's proportionate to make a good decision. Vengeance means getting back at that guy. 
So the police are supposed to take a neutral position. They're supposed to protect us and do that. Remember, in, in those days, there was no police. That if somebody did an injury to somebody else, that person had to answer it. So when um, Clytemnestra, for example, when Clytemnestra killed her husband, uh, Orestes, their son, had to avenge it. So it was not uncommon for people in families to have family feuds to take justice in their hands. They had to because otherwise justice disorders and barbarism would continue. So here's a fugitive. He reminds me of Cain. That's all I can say. He's wandering. He's a fugitive. God told nobody to harm Cain. He said, let nobody harm him. Put a mark. Even though he'd killed Abel, he didn't punish him with death. Um, he, he sent him in exile and protected him. So Homer's showing us there's something more asked of us with respect to murder or vengeance. Um, and um, Theoclymenus is actually going to prophesy Odysseus' homecoming. And it's even more interesting, if you go back to the, the um, scene in which Odysseus' men ate the cattle of Helios, there's a description of the men eating the cattle at that moment. I read it last week. And the cattle are mooing in an eerie, ghostly, scary way. Um, we're going to get exactly those same lines from uh, um, um, Theoclymenus, the, the prophet, when, just when the suitors, when the battle begins and the suitors are going to be slain. It's like some sacramental act, some violence is about to take place. And Theoclymenus is um, prophesying it and, and um, aware of it. Um... We go back to Ithaca from Sparta, and it's then that we learn the story of uh, Eumaeus. And um, we learn that Eumaeus was the son of a king. It just reinforces this theme of the treachery of people. Eumaeus was the son of a king, and the Phaeacian nurse betrayed him. When, or not the, not the Phaeacians, but the uh, Phoenicians. Phoenicians. A Phoenician woman um, betrayed him. When the Phoenicians came, they made love to her, some guy, and he promised her freedom because she herself was a captive if she could do something, and she gives the boy up, and they take Eumaeus away. So here, once again, you know, to, to go back to that Cain and Abel and the fall from the garden, the garden and the good and evil, the way they coexist, the modern scientific mind makes this argument that, that we grew from more primitive stages to more advanced, Anybody look in the world would say that's stupid. It's absolutely stupid. Um, you, you can't look very far in our world and not find savagery everywhere. It's always with us. Always. And it was then. So here you've got the son of a king betrayed. And the girl herself was betrayed. So there are these constant betrayals, constant thievery, like pirating, taking people, selling them for ransom. Odysseus himself, remember, was um, um, the same thing was going to happen to him, or at least in the story that he told. So, um, Eumaeus comes from royal stock, and he's a servant. He's been a loyal servant to Odysseus for 20 years while he was away. 
I, I could find this. I'm just, I looked for it quickly, and you don't look for it because you'll recognize it. In both books, Homer, to my recollection, never addresses a character because we're in a, in our mind, we're in a fictional world. It's telling a story. We're to assume that it was real, that Achilles was a real figure, Odysseus was a real figure, but he never addresses them. He describes them in third person, right? He did this. Odysseus will speak in his own person. In this book, when we get back to Ithaca, Homer constantly does this, and I'm sure you've, you, you've probably come across it 20 times. Then, O swineherd Eumaeus, O Eumaeus, O you Eumaeus, that is his, that is, it's almost as if, now think about this, if we ever, if we ever assume that these are fictional characters, then we can't explain this. Because what he makes clear to us is that he feels so deeply for this man. He was the son of a king. He's a peasant. And he's one of the most good-hearted people in the entire world. And Homer keeps addressing him first person. Or, or second person. You, oh, Eumaeus. Eumaeus. So there's this great tenderness that he feels for this servant. Um, and it's interesting that when you put both of the stories um, together, the stories by Eumaeus and, and Odysseus, they are both full of betrayals and suffering. This is the king come home. He's disguised. This is a servant. He was once the son of a king, and their lives are full of sorrow. Um, Eumaeus goes to the estate to let Telemachus or uh, Penelope know that her son's return. And we know when um, um, Telemachus did return that um, the suitors were planning to kill him again. So there are a number of scenes in which we see the suitors actually planning to kill him. They want him out of the way. So um, Odysseus and Telemachus leave the hut to go to the estate, and it's there that they meet Melanthios, who's the goat herd. Now this is important. He's the son of Dolios. And he's the brother of Melantho. So Dolio, this is really important because you, 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 know, you, you get these characters, you think they're minor and don't think anything of them. Um, Dolios is the father. Melanthios is the goat herd. Melanthios is the one who goes into the armory to get the, the weapons for the, the, uh, tra or the, the suitors. Okay. Melantho is um, um, one of the maidservants. So they're both treacherous, but the father is absolutely faithful to Odysseus. He will join Odysseus on his side to fight the, the relatives at the end of the book. When Odysseus and Laertes, his father, have to meet the father and the relatives of the suitors who are killed, because they all want vengeance. But it's interesting because what's, what Homer's showing us is that here's a really good father and two kids who are awful. The daughter betrays Odysseus and the goat herd is one of the, you know, one of the worst betrayers in all of this stuff because he, he, he took care of his herds. He was in and out of the house. Um, on page 284, 284, after Odysseus and Telemachus back, they, put, they hide the armor away because they know that they're going to go to battle. On page 284, take a look there. Um, Penelope has come downstairs. 
and she sits with Odysseus to meet with him, this stranger who is in disguise as a beggar. And the maids maidservants come in to clear the tables. The servants, of, or I mean, the, the the suitors have all left, and the maidservants are cleaning up. The bottom of 283, they cleared, carried away a great deal of food with the tables and goblets where the men in high spirits have been drinking. It goes on to the next page. Um, again, for the second time, Olantho scolded Odysseus. So she's a maidservant. She doesn't know this is the lord of the house. Do you mean to stay here all night and bother us by poking all over the house? You can see a young woman who thinks she's full of herself. She's a servant. Looking down on a beggar, right? Full of contempt. I mean, Homer's ironies are great. Because remember, Eumaeus was the son of a king. Sometimes a god appears in the... God. We don't know who the person is in front of us. And yet we make judgments all the time. And she shows this man nothing but contempt. Stranger, do you mean to stay here all night and bother us by poking all over the house and spying upon the women? Take yourself out of door, you wretch, and be well sat. So she piles contempt on him. She's full of pride. She doesn't. She doesn't know how to serve. And this, ironically, is the Lord. It sometimes it frightens me. It's hard to imagine Christ not coming in thunder. And I mean, light. That's the way it's presented. By the way, in a, shortly, in a moment, Odysseus is going to take off his disguise, and that's going to be. A reenactment of what we saw in the Iliad. It's going to be the Perusia, the return of the king in glory and judgment, and wrath will come then. But at this moment, she's looking down at him, expressing her contempt. Um, Penelope says down below, Always I know well what monstrous thing you're doing. You hold and shameless bitch. You will wipe it off your own head. You understand all this very well. Because remember, I think this is the one who betrayed Penelope to the suitors. To, to delay them, she was weaving the shroud every night and then unweaving it so it put the suitors off. I think Melantho was the, was the maidservant who betrayed her. So her brother is a betrayer, she's a betrayer, their father is a good man. So Homer's showing us that um, virtue doesn't always pass on. And if the if the Odyssey is showing it anything, it's that it's it's the man who takes pains to be virtuous, who brings a virtue to what he does, who, who I'm assuming will be doing things with his children to help them not grow up to be bad. Um, um, I want to go back for a moment because we missed it, and it's it's. Um, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a touching. Oh, where? It's the dog. I, 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 I thought I had it down here, but I'm not seeing it. Sorry. Uh, before Penelope came down. Yeah, it's just when he arrives at the estate, so it's immediate. But let me just ask it. I, I wanted to read the passage, but you know that when Odysseus arrives at the estate, he and Eumaeus are talking about who should go in first. And Odysseus says, I've been beaten all my life. I'll go in. He's not afraid of, you know, the meanness of the suitors. And as he approaches the house, his dog Argo sees him and recognizes him and dies. Now, nobody recognizes him. He's been gone 20 years. This dog has not seen him for 20 years. What is Homer showing us? It's time to get 
What's he showing us? Well, I think the dog is looking, doesn't use his senses like people do. They don't look at outward appearance. They look at someone's soul or their compassion or whatever. So the, the dog is... is um, knows Odysseus by the person that he is and yeah. not just his yeah. parents. Yeah, let me let me try if I let me try to put that a little bit I yes, couldn't agree more. Melody, you're just right on. I, I, I think it's that humans allow social conventions to get put on them. You know, in in our pride we try to be somebody we're not. You know, the maidservants are maidservants of Odysseus. They're proud, they're arrogant. Um, the suitors are arrogant, they come from families. The fathers aren't stopping them. So people put on these social personas, these, you know, outward, this is who I am. And I think sometimes they get in the way of seeing. And that's not true for animals. Because animals aren't caught up in appearances. Um, Argo sees, sees him and recognizes him. It's... I mean, Homer's amazing. I mean, stop and think about that. A dog recognizes this man, and all of these people, and this is their king, don't. So indirectly, he's saying something about the way in which we put on surface manners, and they get in the way of perceiving, of genuinely seeing. Remember Plato's cave. I mean, it goes to your point, Melody, that too often we're, we're taken by appearances, to, and so often that's a result of our own putting on of masks, of seeming to be something we're not. Um, on page 292, when Odysseus is there, I want to go back to that scene. Can you all turn there? Because it's really important. Uh, this is when Pen uh, Penelope scolds Melantho. Um, and then she asks Eurycleia to wash this guest's feet. This is an old man. Um, we're going to have a, an interesting exchange between Penelope and um, Odysseus in a second. Um, but for now, um, uh oh, sorry. Um, page 292. Um, she comes up to Odysseus and washes his feet, and she recognizes the scar that Odysseus received from a boar wound when he was younger and was wounded. And we get the story. This is really important, bottom of 292. She sees the scar, and immediately she recognizes. And it's interesting, it's a servant. It's a servant. Telemachus didn't recognize him. Um, she does because she had um, nursed him, cared for him. So she recalls the scene when Odysseus was given the wound, and it's interesting because he had to be very young, but he was the first one in the hunt to go after the boar and was wounded by the boar. And she came and put Odysseus on his grandfather's lap, Autolycus, 
And it's at that point that Autolycus names Odysseus, the bottom of 292. Your nade him upon his very knees and spoke a word and named him. Autolycus, now find yourself that name you will bestow on your own child's dear child, that is your grandson, for you have prayed much to have him. Then Autolycus spoke to her and gave her an answer. My son-in-law and daughter, give him the name I tell you, since I have come to this place distasteful to many women and men alike on the prospering earth, so let him be given the name Odysseus, that is in Greek, that is distasteful. Then when he grows up and comes to the great house of his mother's, I will give him freely of those things to make him hand send him back. So his name is distasteful. It, you can, there are different readings of that word. It can mean um, to cause distaste in some, or anger or trouble that somebody you're, you make somebody troubled with you because of what you're doing or you're troubling them, being distasteful to them. We've talked about that before. Wherever he goes, wherever he goes, because he represents this mean, um, he leaves people um, upset. And, and interesting, I mean, this is what's interesting. So many of those people were told he would come. Indirectly, what Homer's doing is, is saying, in, in every one of us, there's a logos in the world, there's a logos in every human person. In every person, there's a potential for becoming naturally good, virtuous. Remember this telos. Every one of us can become perfect in the natural order, not the supernatural. We can, people can become virtuous. It's like a bloom on a flower. We can become good people. But we have to struggle with, you know, to deal with ourselves, to admit our excesses, our faults, and work to correct them. So wherever he goes, he brings problems. He makes people aware that they're missing a norm. There's something wrong. There's a disorder, an extreme at one end or another. Um, whatever it is, I mean, we've looked at all of them. But Odysseus is an image of the, the, the possible fruition of a human can come to. You know, when I was growing up, we used to use the word a lot. A, a certain kid had a lot of potential. What did that mean? And do all children grow up to realize their potential? Do parents help them? Do their communities help them? What, what Homer's making clear is you can't do that without the help of your parents, and you can't do that without the help of your regime, the community in which you grow up. They play a major role in, in either helping you to fulfill that potential or even destroy it. Because we've seen in Odysseus's wanderings regime after regime after regime after regime with disorders. Right? The Strigonese Queen, Lotus Eaters, you name it. Scaria, the Phaeacians, too soft. So, um, <laughs> when she acknowledges that she sees him, Odysseus takes her by the throat and says, <laughs> If you let any 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 of this on to anybody, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill you when I kill the suitors. And she answers pretty firmly back. She says, "Don't mistrust me." Um, she's a loyal servant. She says, "I will let you know the maid servants who are the ones who betrayed you," and she will. Um, it's at this point um, on page 296 that Penelope, who's sitting with Odysseus, recalls a dream she had of these geese. And I want to look at this, because this is on page 296. 
she says it's a recurring dream. She had a dream of these geese, and this eagle came along and killed them. And, and, and the eagle comes back, and she knows it's Odysseus. So she recognizes it, and she wants to know Odysseus' response. Remember, he's still a stranger. She doesn't know this is her husband. He says, the meaning is obvious. It's your husband, and he's here. He's coming back. So in, in, from a number of perspectives, Penelope's been informed, and other people have been informed, that Odysseus is either on his way or there. And now this is the night before battle. But here's the line I want to go to. She describes it, and then the, the eagle killing the necks of them all, or breaking the necks and killing them. Then I began to weep that was in my dream and cried out aloud, and around me gathered the fair-haired Achaean women as I cried out sorrowing for my geese killed by the ego. Up above, she said, I have twenty geese here about the house, and they feed on grains of wheat from the water trough. I love to watch them. She knows that, the, or she, she's assuming, she, I mean, the way this reads, she sees these as images of the suitors. Odysseus is the eagle, comes out to kill them. She loved to watch the geese, and she cried when the eagle killed them. What do you guys make of that? Okay. So I okay, what? Okay, what? I think, <laughs> I think that she remembers Odysseus the way he was before, 20 years ago, when he went off to war, and he's an eagle, and he is, you know, can be vicious and egotistical. She doesn't realize that he has changed. And so the geese, you know, they've all been courting her. They're, they're um, complimentary, and, you know, they're, they're I mean they're worthless but at least they've been nice and kind to her and pleasant to look at and and she's kind of scared that Odysseus would come back and still be I mean not that he was a bad guy to begin with but he was different you know he was all about war and so that's my take on it. does that make sense it's the first time I've disagreed with you in any of your comments but <laughs> hold on I want to I, I, I want to hold off on it any, anybody else? Anybody? Anybody else got a different reading on this? I'm, I'm only laughing, Melody, because I, in, in all of the meetings we've had, particularly online since we started, I, I, you, I said this to you. You just sort of left me in amazement because you just, I mean, you're, you're reading so well, and your comments a couple of weeks ago to me were, I was laughing. I told you you should sit in my, you should be giving the class next week. I was, because I thought you were, you know, you're reading. I have a very different take, but maybe maybe some of you will agree with 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 Melody and disagree with me. Anybody else? Yes. David K, go ahead. Yes, I thought the geese um, were symbolic of uh, the suitors and uh, eagle, uh, meaning Odysseus, right. is coming to, to slaughter the geese. Right. Suitors. Right. That was what I thought. Yeah, but hold on. Now, don't go away. I went, but, but what I'm asking is, she says. I love to watch them. She, these yeah. are the suitors. She said, I love to watch them. And then she says, when the eagle killed them, um, she cried in sorrow. Well, she, she enjoyed being flattered and being surrounded by suitors, the attention and all that. Yeah. So that's what she meant by she, you know, loved to watch them. Yeah. 
David, did you have something? I was going to say, yeah, the, uh, back about five minutes ago, you were talking about um, knowing the end was there. I was, I was trying to compare it to when at the presentation when Mary and Joseph presented Jesus to the high priest, and the high priest said, now I've seen him and I can be fulfilled and you can take my life. He was talking to the father. So kind of bringing an end to his life because he saw the fulfillment that he was looking for. And I was relating that to what you were talking about a few minutes ago. Can you relate that directly to, to um, Penelope? Because she, well, wait, hold on, wait. Because the suitor for, for, you know, over 10 years, whatever it's been, these suitors have been eating Odysseus out of house. They're destroying his home. Right. I, I'm going to get to this the savagery of it in a minute because we're getting right to the nub of it. But these men have been destroyed her, her, her their home. But the description of her here is that she loved to watch them and she felt a sorrow when they were killed. So go, how do you relate that to the 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 no, temple I'm scene? Relating that to this particular event, but to the event that you were talking about previously, where someone right was able to bring something to closure. Right. He was able to bring his life to closure because he had been presenting what he was looking for during his lifetime. Right. And he was there, so now God could call him home. Right, right. I related that more to Ann. Ann, go ahead. I don't know that I have anything further, but when I read about Argos, that was the first thing that came to me was was Simeon feeling that he could now Oh wow. Wow. So you're thinking about the dog right mm -hmm. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you and Dave. No, I really think that's a good reading. Honestly, really good reading, both of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I missed that. That's. I think that's really good. But anybody else about Penelope and her and her description of the stream? I think the uh, the flesh of the human being enjoys being flattered. And, and Penelope is kind of regretting the reality is going to come in when the flattery goes away because it's killed off. Her husband will come back and no matter how good it is, it won't be a flattery world. It'll be the reality of life. That would be different, Say, go ahead. Wait, go ahead. Wait, here's Suzanne. I'm, it, will, it, will be, it will be different. Can you What's familiar? Is Wait, can you all hear? Can you all hear Suzanne? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Can you what's, speak up? What's familiar to her right now, after twenty years, is all of the suitors, and um, geese are not um, geese are not cuddly or nice, but they're interesting to watch. Um, so what's familiar to her is the suitors and their presence. What's unfamiliar to her? Odysseus. Yeah, one of the it's interesting. This is one of the one of the problems I'm having with this is um, I mean I I think I'm trying to hold on to two things here at once. Um, is that Penelope's been faithful for 20 years, 
and she's not she's done nothing to betray Odysseus so as a woman she's being I mean think about all the treacherous women we saw at sea I mean archetypes and they're not women but they're the archetypes of women Circe Calypso we saw all of the um, the wives um, in the underworld the queens of the dead that um, for the great for the greater majority of women we're what we're watching and Clytemnestra we're watching women who have acted selfishly for their own interests and done whatever they're going to do. Penelope for 20 years has been faithful. And um, and I, at least as I read her, it seems to me that fidelity's not questioned. She did everything she could with that shroud trick to delay. And the wisdom of it was, <laughs> this, is, this is where she's shrewd, like, and, and where I think we can't romanticize her. What she was doing was holding on to the suitors in case her husband didn't come. But she, didn't want to, she did not want to lose hope in him. So even during that long trial, despite whatever temptation she's facing to let him go, she's, she remains faithful. So she's not given in. She's done what she can to hold on to the suitors in a sort of cunning way. So she's, she's not dismissed them. It's not a black-white thing. She's like Odysseus. She's She's bearing a hardship, suffering, um, knowing that her husband might not come back so she can live with a suitor. And from all that all that's said, it looks like Eurymachus would be the probably the best, and Timachus seemed the leader is the meanest. But here in this dream, the, for her to say, I love watching them, and she felt a sorrow, su suggests... Um, um, a, a, a weakness underneath the strength that she's attracted. These men are savage. They, they plot to kill her son. And I don't think there's any question that they would kill Odysseus if, if they were given a chance. So these men are vicious, but it just shows, it seems to me, an element of the human weakness in all of us. And, and I don't, I don't want to blow that up. Because it seems to me the, the focus of the, the story is for 20 years she's been faithful. It's only the very next day when, um, um, when she gets up, the next day, that she's, or even, even the night before she says, she's going to finally make a decision. She's going to choose a husband, and she's the one who suggests the, the um, bowstring in contest. Because she's finally reached a point at 20 years when she says, enough. It's time for me to move on. So I just think Homer's doing what he can to show a human weakness, but to describe it as almost to be unjust to her because she has been absolutely faithful for 20 years. Um, it's once again, he just he will not romanticize things. There, there is a weak, there's a weakness, there's an evil to the world. We can't pretend it's not there. Um, I want to get to the end because I want to try to tie this up and we're getting close. You know that the that the, the following oh oh here here's the this is the giveaway. We've got to do this. Um, take a look at 298. This to me is one of the most amazing parts of the whole book. The night before battle, Odysseus cannot sleep. He cannot sleep because he knows his life's at risk the next day. Page 298. Now remember this. 
And as a bitch facing the unknown man stands over her, callow puppies and growls and rages to fight, so Odysseus' heart was growling inside of him as he looked on these wicked... He's, he's angry. He's ready to act on these men. These men have been violating his home. They've been treacherous. They betrayed him. They betrayed Penelope. They threatened... They planned to kill his son. He struck himself on the chest and spoke to his heart and scolded it. Remember anger. Here's that... He's... You know, when we fail at something, we get angry in ourselves and say, step forward, do this. Particularly when it's hard. We get angry at ourselves, not just at others. Bear up my heart, you have had worse to endure before this. On that day when the irresistible Cyclops ate up my strong companion. That's the first time since the wanderings that we've had an allusion back to the Cyclops. So he's he's um, comparing this moment, recalling this the connection between this moment and then. Okay. Uh, Athena helps him go to sleep for a while, and then um, early in the morning, he wakes up on page 300. He rolled together the blanket where he'd been sleeping, laid them down, prayed to Zeus with his hands lifted. Father Zeus, if willingly you gods led me over wet and dry to my land, after giving too much affliction, let one of the waking people send me an omen from inside the house, and let Zeus also show me an outside portent. This is called taking the auspices. Taking the auspices. A-S-U-A-U-S-P-I-C-E-S. Taking the auspices, okay? So he spoke in prayer. He says, give me an omen. He's praying to the gods. Immediately at that moment, top of 301, immediately sent his thunder from shining Olympus high above the clouds, and noble Odysseus was happy. From the house a mill woman sent him an omen. She was nearby when the shepherd of the host had set up the hand mills, and there twelve women in all had been bending to grind the wheat and the barley flour men's morrow. The others, since they had finished grinding their wheat, by now were sleeping, but this one had not ended her work, and she was the weakest. She stopped the mill and spoke aloud a sign for her master. Father Zeus, you are a lord of the gods and people. Now you have thundered loud from the starry sky, although there's no cloud. There's no storm. It has to be some other reason. You show for this a portent for someone. Grant now also for wretched me this prayer that I make you. On this day let the suitors take for the last and latest time their desirable feasting in the halls of Odysseus. For it is they who have broken my knees with heart sore labor as I grind the meal for them. Let this be their final feasting. Where did we see on the wandering somebody grind the knees, grind somebody up, and eat them? Didn't Cyclops grind up the men and eat them? So, where are the Cyclops at home? It's obvious, no? She just said it. These hmm. suitors, yeah, the suitors have been grinding. The, you know, I mean, just start, I, we don't have that, I'm sorry, we may have to, I don't think to. So, one of the questions I'm going to ask in a minute, where are these, you know, archetypes? But here's an immediate connection. Odysseus himself makes an allusion to the Cyclops. 
the mill woman comes out and she describes the suitors as grinding her up, breaking down her knees. When people, when, when children abuse their parents, when they take them for granted, how are they not eating up their characters? The suitors have been using these women to feed them all this time. The Cyclops is an image of those men. If you could see underneath the surface to see what these men are like, that's what you'd find. Is that clear? Yes. Yeah. You can't miss the... And here's the thing. What's the taking of the auspices? This is really important. When somebody makes a prayer and they're, and they're assuming that the gods are responding to them, how do they know that they're not just imagining something? Because the, origi the religious imagination can go wild. People, you know this, people make claims about God all the time. The proof was it was in the taking of the auspices. If a, if a prayer was made and an omen was given, it was answered. That answer was a confirmation of the omen. It's called a taking of the auspices. You make a prayer, the gods will let you know if it's answered. The church does that every time it wants to look at a miracle. How do they know that a miracle is performed? The first thing, because you know, millions of people are going to claim miracles all the time. People say strange things. The church always takes an auspices. They've, they've got to see if it was confirmed. All the, all the readings of Mary had to have confirmations. Is that clear? So already here in the ancient world, we're dealing with the miraculous, the divine entering in time, and the human order answering it. So here's this amazing moment when Odysseus knows he's going to go into battle and he asks for an omen and a mill woman steps out and not only does she confirm the omen, but she, in, in her words, she gives away the suitors. These are the Cyclops. This, this is who these men are. Now I don't want to go through this because there's too much. I want, to, I want to take a minute. You know that what happens the next that morning is Telemachus sets up all the axes um, and um, the, the men are going to be tested. Whoever strings the bow will marry Penelope. Telemachus tries to string it. He tries three times. Can he, well, let me ask you, can he string that bow? This is a quiz I used to give students. I think so. He tried three times and failed. On the fourth time it says he was about to do it and Odysseus stops him. He gives a look because Odysseus doesn't want him to do it. So I, I think that's an indication that Telemachus has stepped into manhood. That's that rite of passage. If, I, if, you, if you doubt, if you, if, let's see, where did he do it? Um, 312, I think, something there. I don't want to, I want to, I want to get to these questions. Um, page 312, about two-thirds of the way down, three times he made it vibrate, and now pulling the bow for the fourth time, he would have strung it, but Odysseus stopped him, though he was eager, making a signal with his head. Odysseus doesn't want to go, I think that's crucial, because we know from that act, Telemachus is ready to... Um, fight with his dad because you know it's going to have they're going to go into actual battle Telemus is going to have a spear he's going to have a sword he's going to have to do battle with these men so 
It's not a small thing. Um, I want to I want to try to pull this up short to get to the end. You know that Odysseus strings the bow. Um, who's the who is the first person he shot, and who should he have shot? He shot Antinous, who's the leader. I hope you all see that. If you're going to fight men, who's the first person you want to take out? You take out the leader. It's really interesting because the next person is Eurymachus. He's the one that everybody thought would get Penelope's hand. And Eurymachus begs for pardon. He says, we will make reparations, give you back. He wants to save his life. Um, Odysseus kills him. And then the battle rages. You know, it's a hundred suitors. Um, I want to. I'm going to jump to one passage just because I love it, and then I, I'm going to try to um, put a stop to this because um, I've got some basic questions that I've got to ask you, and I, I don't think we're going to have time. We're going to have to carry this over. But um, you know that Melanthios, the goat herd, goes into the room and gets the armor out, and the two um, servants, the um, the goat herd and the ox herd. Um, tie him up, and when the um, suitors are defeated, Odysseus kills them all, and then he takes all of the maidservants. There were 50 maidservants, and Eurycleia tells him that 12 of them were unfaithful. He takes the 12 unfaithful maidservants and hangs them by a cord and snaps their necks, strangles them. Um, I want to come back to that in a moment. Um, On page 341, you know that um, there's this beautiful scene in, in 340 when after Odysseus cleans up and he presents himself to Penelope, she rejects him. Um, he, he assumes that she should make bed and they should you know, go to bed together and they're reconciled and everything's okay. She tells Eurycleia to make up a bed outside their room and he gets furious and he recalls the, the, what he did in their marriage by making a bed out of an olive bowl inside their room. And he's outraged that she would do that. When he says that, she knows then that he's truly her husband. So she was testing him, doing exactly what he would do. And when he, when he does that, and she knows it's her husband, the two embrace, they're reconciled. And um, I just, um, on page 341, after that reconciliation, the two go to bed and make love, page 341 to 40, now, Dawn of the Rosy Fingers would have dawned on their weeping had not the great Athena planned otherwise. She held the long night back at the outward edge. She detained Dawn of the Golden Throne by the ocean and would not let her harness her fast footer. Penelope, or I mean Athena, stops time. So, for the first time in the whole novel, husband and wife are together. They've endured these trials together. They share their stories, both of them, and they weep. And during this moment of lovemaking, Athena stops time. So for the first time in the epic, they step outside the epic action. Because the epic action, by definition, if you know anything about epic action, is battle. It's killing. It's, this is the first moment we've seen anything like this. And get close to it, I think. Remember when Achilles re-enters the war and all the gods? You know, remember re-enter that... Um, that um, Machia. 
psychomachia, the psychomachia when there's that extraordinary moment when he enters the war, then this strange event takes place with the gods re-entering the war. Um, a really important moment here, the counterpart is this moment when the two make love and time stops. I want to stop, you, you know what happens after this, that um, Odysseus and the, the, the men who've been faithful with him will have to go outside and deal with um, the father of Antinous and the, the family members of the, of the two suitors who were slain because they want vengeance. So there's a battle once again. Um, um, Odysseus's father, Laertes, kills um, Antinous's father. There's a fight. And finally, Zeus sends down a lightning bolt and the fighting stops and peace is restored. And that's how the book ends. I've got a couple of questions and we're not going to have time to answer them, but let me, let me just ask a couple of them now. The first one is, what's your response to the, the battle? Um, Eurymachus asked pardon. He said, we will make reparations and Odysseus kills him. He kills all the suitors. He and his friends kill them, Telemachus, the, the goat herd, the ox herd. And they string the 12 unfaithful women up and break their necks in a cord. There are some people who look at that and think that it's a brutal ending and unjust. They think that Homer's idea of justice is cruel and old-worldly, that it's too brutal. What's your response? What do you guys, what's your response to that? I'm already having wine. Well, if we believe in our faith, the, at the end of life, the same will happen to all mankind as happened to those unfaithful. <laughs> so you, 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 that's, that, David, was that you? Yes. Yeah. So you see that as a just act? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Justice yeah, is not social justice, it's justice. Yeah. Anybody else? Well, it's, it's easier for me to say this about the suitors than to say it about the, the, the maidservants because, you know, our, our conventions maybe. But the, the suitors were, there was no end to their treachery. And, um, yeah. That, that, you know, I don't think that Odysseus was going to be satisfied by promises of restitution after they had abused his his uh, household and his and his wife for so many years. Okay. If he had let them go, do you think they would have just left and gone on their way and everything would have been okay? Or would they come back and try to kill him, plot to kill him? Well, perhaps they would have, but if they... In fact, but if he had let them go, he would have had to live with these treacherous creatures in his kingdom. And there's no, in my, at least in my mind, there's no question they would have, they plotted to kill Telemachus. Um, I, I, and my, I just, I, I have no qualms about what he did with the women because women are not men. The, the women were not going to get physical and, you know, use swords and, but they were treacherous in their own way. And um, Melantho deceived Penelope. They'd been deceived. They'd been sleeping with the men. So... You know, the treachery was there. Um, it's interesting to me that out of 50 women, only 12 were 
unfaithful, but once again, it's, it's Homer's way of, I mean, I, he's just amazing. It's his way of recognizing out of 50 women, the greater majority of them were faithful, good women, but 12 of them were treacherous. Um, here's my question, um, and I think what I'm going to do is call an end of the course, I mean the class tonight, because I'm, I'm trying to be really careful of time and get better at it than I've been, so here's the two questions that I'd like to take up, and it would be a, a good thing to leave you guys with. Um, where is Odysseus, what, what does homecoming mean? That's a good essay question. What does homecoming mean for Homer? Um, you know, we, we, we grew up with all sorts of notions of what it means to be in a family. We are a particularly materialistic world. We think if we've got security and comfort, we're very much like the Phaeacians. If we've got material, if we're in suburbia and we've got a nice house and we're comfortable and secure, we think we're happy. We know that that's not true because divorce, abortion are rampant in suburbia. Drugs, I mean, there's all sorts of problems going on. They're just underneath the surface. So suburbia is not like a garden state. There's lots of disorders in suburbia. Um, but in our, in our world, we grew up, we're encouraged to think if we just have enough money and come buy a nice house and have material comforts, we'll be fine. So, what a, what, what's Homer's view of a homecoming and Odysseus's role in it? And it, remember, it's masculine. It's, he's, he's the male. Um, so, I've got a lot of questions, and we don't have time to answer them, but I've, I've got to get these questions out. Why is it a hundred suitors? That's a round number. That, that's symbolic in some way. It's only after he defeats the suitors that he can be reconciled with Penelope. So what is it he's, what is he defeating just then? And, it, and how do we understand that battle in the context of what he's had to go through on his journeys? What is he answering? Who is he? What has he become? That he can take all of those experiences and defeat these suitors. There's something important and symbolical about this moment. Are you all following this? I mean, these are pretty tough questions. Because it, it goes to this question, what is a homecoming? Because I, I think you know by now, Homer's not this stupid guy. It, it, there's so much that he understands that open opens so directly on everything that Christ does. So what does this moment mean? Why a hundred suitors? What does the defeat of the men mean? What does it tell us about him? And where do we find all the adventures at home? We ta I talked a minute ago about the, the Cyclops. The suitor's image. The Cyclops is an image of the suitors. They grind down people. They wear them out. They use them for themselves. They eat them up. That's what they are. They've been eating Odysseus out of house and home. We talk about children sometimes doing that today. As if it's okay with parents. Where are all the archetypes? The Lestrigonese queen, the siren, Skill and Charybdis, Circe, Calypso. I want to nail those down before we leave this work. Because I don't think we're going to understand what, what Odysseus's defeat of the suitors mean if we don't find those archetypes at home. So next week I'd like to start Virgil, we will start Virgil for sure. 
but I'd like to start with a little bit of time for, with these questions, okay? I think they're really important questions that go to marriage, and, it, and it's a difficult topic today because marriages are always hard. Marriages always involve a struggle, um, and this is all about a marriage, and what a, what, a, what, a hu what a husband and wife have to suffer in order to come to this moment um, when Athena can stop time. To try to put this in the context, you know that our church calls us, husband and wife, to become one flesh. And I'm trusting everybody knows how hard that is. To become one flesh means to open yourself to another with all that that entails in the way of carrying another in you. And that other person opening him or herself to you so that they have to bear all of you. And, and if we're taking Homer seriously, it means helping each other become virtuous, to become better. What's Christ's call? He, he keeps presenting himself as the groom. So this, I'm, I'm not stretching things here. Christ constantly presents himself as a groom and us and the church as his bride. The book of Revelation, the ending passage of the Bible, the entire Bible is the groom calling his bride. Come, come. That's his call. And you know that the wife is asked to obey the husband. The husband is asked to obey Christ. And we are called to be perfect in our loves, to become one. So in the, in the Odyssey, we're dealing with a husband and wife moving, being reunited. And we've been watching the struggle, what it, what it entails to get there. So my question is, what, how do we look at this homecoming? What does it mean? And, um, and can we find the archetypes? And remember, because I... I, I I, I wouldn't be doing this if this weren't connected to our church. We know from our faith that this moment will come. The church calls it the parousia, that Christ is going to come. The return of the king. Tolkien's trilogy, we've talked about this before, right? You've all, you know, the return of the king. E.B. White's return of the king. It's, it's an old theme, number of people, the number right. Google it and you'll see a lot of works. The return of the king, the king will come in judgment and glory. What happened with Achilles? The return of the king, back into war. What happened when he returned? The war came to an end. I mean, the step was taken to bring that war to an end. Odyssey, how does it end? Return of the king. Here it is. These ancient poets had some intimations in the natural order that something else was coming. So how are we to understand homecoming and the marriage? Um, the role that Odysseus plays in it and what Penelope does, what Homer's teaches us about these things, okay? Tough questions. Good questions, I hope. Okay? Um, let me stop there because I'm already over and I promised myself I'd hold myself to time. So you guys have a... Um, in, any, anybody want to make a brief comment before we leave or offer a brief question or I know those are heavy things but we've just finished a really great book it's there's a lot there any any questions or comments or
Dr. Alexander, is uh, I can't help but questioning if Homer is foretelling of all these stories of Odysseus's travels and uh, I don't know if you call it uh, sufferings or adventures or whatever, is foretelling of Christ, his suffering, and then homecoming to heaven? Is he going to foretell? I, okay, I'm going to, I try not to do this, but I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, Kay. That's my way of looking at Homer. I don't think he saw, the, I don't think he saw the Son of God coming down, but I think he had intimations of something like that. I don't think he could see heaven the way Christ revealed it to us, but in every other respect, I, I can't read the Iliad or the Odyssey without seeing them as foretellings of Christ. That there's something in nature, the Greeks called it a logos. We call logos, we call Christ the logos. He is the word. They had this sense of something in nature moving that way. And Homer had this extraordinary grasp of all of it. So that's exactly my reading, Kay, that, that he had this amazing prophetic sight. He could see these things. I, and that's, you know, that's 3,000 years ago. He had this amazing capacity to look into nature and see in nature what was there that so, so many of us don't see. Um, I think and that's... This, sorry, this go ahead. Was before Christ. Yeah, well, remember, the Trojan War was 1200 B.C. Homer lived around 800 B.C. Mm -hmm. So he's 800 years before Christ. Um, and Virgil's going to pick this up. Virgil's going to learn everything he does, he learns from Homer, but he's going to take us one step closer to Christ even yet. So when you finish reading Homer and Virgil, at least in my mind, it's it's hard not to see them aware. I, I don't think they could name him. I don't think they could make him concrete. But from what they understood about our human nature and the gods and the way the gods played in things, they take us right up to Christ. So That's why the course is called Literature's Prophecy. That's, my wife, Suzanne, just said, that's why the course is called Literature's Prophecy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I wouldn't be doing this otherwise because it, you know, in a in a classroom at UD, I I, I wouldn't be stressing these things. I'd be trying to teach the works, not in a catechetical way, but here in the church, it's, you know, it's, it's easier to do that because that's the setting here. So, um, I I do personally think, the works are, tremendously prophetic, amazingly prophetic. Okay. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I don't want to. Uh, this is probably uh, opening a door that you don't want to go into tonight. But I had to ask the question because it's not really treated in the text. But we hear about what uh, Odysseus must do after he regains his kingdom from Tiresias, right. uh, his journey. And uh, I know it's a it's a moving on or it's a turning point for him. But can we discuss that next time? Yeah. I'm Mike. I'm so glad you. I'm so. Do me a favor, can't you? Because I, I just think it's a really good... Because it, the book extends beyond itself with that prophecy. 
So not to touch on it would not be good. So I'm so glad you brought it up. Do me a favor, at when we begin next week to take up these questions, be sure we cover that. Ask it again, can you? I will. Thank you. Okay, it's a joy to see you guys. I'm sorry we're not physically present. Just genuinely sorry, but it's a joy to see you guys. Um, genuinely a joy. I'm, I'm glad we're doing this together. We just finished a really great book. You, you've done something a lot of people didn't. You, you've read Homer. Um, we'll go on to Virgil. You guys stay safe. Um, if any of you wants to join the Francis group, we're doing Hemingway's Old Man of the Sea. Um, but we'll start Virgil here next week for sure. Okay. Bless you all. All of you stay safe. Okay. Keep Suzanne and me in your prayers, please. We will keep all of you in our prayers. Okay. Good night. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. So how many? In class night? I think 11, 11 or 12 at some point. Some people, I think some people left a little bit early. Um, why are you? Why did you turn for? Because of the bugs. Because the, you were scratching. God, the thanks, screws, Doc. So. Bless your soul. Bless your soul. Can you help clean up? Just. Oh. This is. A, oops, I forgot.